0: Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Our guest for today is Sharif El-Mekhi, Meki, is the founder of Male Educators for Social Justice and has made a difference in the lives of Philadelphia's children as principal of the Mastery Charter School Shoemaker Campus. We're so fortunate to speak with Sharif as he takes on a new role as the director of the Center for Black Educator Development. Welcome, Sharif. I'm so thank excited you. that you're here. Welcome to New York City. Philadelphia's finest yeah. is here in the Big <laughs> Apple.
1: Thank you so um, much. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. Um, I've had the pleasure of speaking with you on a number of oca- occasions, and I think you are an incredible leader and educator. And in terms of the topic we're going to be talking about today, I can't think of anyone better suited to provide their insights on the tools and what we can do to support black boys in helping uh, them to thrive. So um, looking forward to the conversation, but first, I want to hear about your new role yeah, yeah. and uh, what's happening with that, and to hear what your hopes and, and your thoughts about taking on this leadership opportunity.
1: Yeah, well, thanks again for having me,''m um, exciting to be here and um, As far as my new role, after 26 years working in three different uh, neighborhood schools, public schools in Philadelphia, I decided to uh, jump full time in, in, um, in the Center for Black Educated Development, which has has really just evolved um, from the original organization that I uh, began in 2014, the fellowship Black Male Educators for Social Justice, that really uh, the fellowship worked to center the voices and experiences of black male educators. Nationally, only 2% of black men are, um, 2% of the teaching force are black men. Um, Philadelphia is double that, but still that pales in comparison to the percentage of uh, black boys and black children in in the school district of Philadelphia. Um, but I was still in my school full-time and doing the work part-time. And at, at some point, I just wanted to just dive in and say, you know what, after 26 years, what would it look like for the next 26 years for me to be um, to working at the center? And, uh, and really, we have three pillars. Uh, one is uh, a small part of it is policy. Um, We we believe that this work can't be done without policy. There have been plenty of policies over the years that have undermined uh, the diverse pipeline to to leading classrooms and schools, and so we can't ignore that wholly, and we have to work in partnerships with policymakers and politicians. Uh, The second piece is really professional learning and mentoring. We believe that professional development is key, Um, culture-responsive teaching, um, and a, a learner ready workforce where they 're ready to teach and educate the children that they serve is vital. Um, the cultural responsiveness and the mindset um, the trauma informed practices is absolutely crucial for the success of our our students and so we believe professional development is is paramount. Um, many teachers do not leave their teacher colleges prepared, and they, this is from their own mouths and surveys um, where they share. We, I was not prepared after, <laughs> even through graduate school, I was not ready to teach um, to urban children. And um, and we believe mentoring, like, and not just a mentorship that's haphazardly thrown at, at uh, new teachers, but teachers in their early career, first, second, third year teachers still need mentoring and support. And so So we have policy, we have professional learning, and then the third large piece is really the pipeline, and we're using the Freedom Schools model to expose high school students, college students, as well as uh, we're uh, investigating middle school students as far as career explorations. This is what it looks like to teach, and so we launched two Freedom Schools this summer, uh, about 100 first, second, and third graders, and what we had was uh, about 15 college students and every college student had two high school students as their classroom assistants this this three person team worked with first second and third graders mainly on uh phonics and so we use research based practices um, that Dr. Nell Duke has, has uh curated over the years and researched and and proven and um as well as like a books a book list uh that has uh black and culturally relevant characters um from uh University of Chicago, Illinois with uh Dr. Uh, Tatum and so that's what we we used to uh to build Freedom School. So it was fantastic and it was great seeing these college students and high school students teach first graders. My own daughter was in the program. Oh, like that's, that's fantastic. how yeah. That's how much um, I believe in it and things. So we have pipeline professional development and mentoring as well as policy, is, is what we're doing at the Center for Black Educated Development. And while we're in Philadelphia, we're a national organization. So,
0: so I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about issues related to the pipeline, because before we went on air, I was mentioning... Um, that most of us when we were growing up was like, oh, you know, there are challenges with recruiting black educators. Because like I had had black teachers or I had black professors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so talk about what those challenges are. Help our listeners understand what is happening both locally and nationally in terms of recruiting more black educators into the profession. Yeah,
1: I mean, and this is a national issue, not just a local one in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, but I'll, I'll start with the 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 local the Philadelphia uh, context. So, Philadelphia 1.40% of the public school teachers were black. 40%, that is down to 24%. So, that is a steep drop um, and for myriad reasons across the state, there is a uh, 70% decrease in the amount of people, black people who are getting certified to teach. And so for the entire state uh, a couple years ago, they only had about 10 10 black men who came through all the teacher colleges across the state, which is a ton of them. And so it, it's for a variety of reasons. One, we still have to do a much better job in, in um, elementary and secondary ed. The, just the sheer numbers of uh, black boys who graduate in four years in Philadelphia, only 57% mm-hmm. of black boys graduate in four years in, in our city. Um, that's problematic, right? Mm-hmm. And so even though a few more will persist in year five and year six, each each year adds complexities and, and, and challenges where um, the numbers just taper off. And so just even the number of, of black people who are going and attaining a college degree. So you graduate high school, if you're fully prepared, if you're able to persist through, if you have enough money to to uh, get through, and then actually graduate, then on top of that, you have a lot of different options, right? So you have people who will be uh, banging on the door to uh, you know to recruit you. But with that, we also what we found was a theme amongst uh, young young students who said, you know what, I've had a traumatic experience in public schools. Why in the world would I choose this as a career? Why would I come back? Um, you know, Chris Emden uh, labels it like this going back to the scene of a crime, a crime against yourself. I get that. And, and so for our youth, you know, that's also, a, that's also a challenge. And then people don't realize how expensive it is to become a teacher. So we know that the, the cost of uh, attaining a college degree has skyrocketed. However, for uh, first-generation college uh, goers. This is a whole new bill on top of already trying, you know, many families trying to just uh, stay afloat, keep their head above water. This is a brand new bill. So it is extremely expensive to become a teacher. Um, not just a degree, but the certification, you need to get your master's, you have continuing ed uh, courses. If you don't pass it the first time, you got to pay for it the second time. So there are a lot of uh, cost and hidden cost, And so there are just a ton of reasons why. Um, but I think the main reason is no one's been tending to it.
0: So... Um... Is there also a challenge when you think about now the kind of debt that students are carrying um, when they come out of school, certainly out of college, if they pursue a graduate degree, and then they decide to to give back to the community, be in what I would call the public sector going into right. education? Right. Is it also because the salary does not really afford them the opportunity um, to to be in the profession is it it should we be doing more in terms of um, talking about the best practices for creating this pipeline because I do feel that until I met you um, I had not really experienced these kinds of conversations and awareness raising about some of these challenges in in recruiting black educators
1: yeah absolutely I I think it's a it's a and well interestingly enough like you know Yes, teachers are not paid enough. Like yes, elevating the profession means professionalizing it, and one of the way to do that, one of the ways to do that is is uh, increasing the salary. Um, you know, around like what that means. Having policymakers have a better understanding of what the, what's the day to day life of a teacher. A lot of folks, you know, when they talk about teaching, they really think that people would get off at three o'clock. There's no such thing. I've never seen an effective teacher that consistently just gets off at three or isn't working to develop themselves over the summer or in the weekends. Like, you know, it is a real big misconception for people who've only experienced schools as students. And never returned before they started making policy and, and, and decisions that impact the lives of teachers, which impacts lives of students. But interestingly enough, Dr. Ivory Tolson did some research a while ago. And actually, the number one um, job preference, um, number one job choice for uh, black men was elementary ed and secondary ed. You know, um, so education is high. But even though people know and go in with their eyes wide open about the cost. People are still very interested. And, and it makes sense when you look at our communities. One, uh, you know, people of color are very communal. And when you look at uh, black men, Latino men, they are constantly mentoring, supporting, coaching. I see so many black men adjacent to schools, sure. right, adjacent to classrooms. People are, you know, so they're engaged. It's a matter of, of helping them navigate the systems, helping defray the cost um, you know, your salary is one thing if you don't have these huge loans. You know, if you have a salary and your loans are minimal, then it makes a difference in, in your, um, you know, your day-to-day uh, lifestyle. And so I, I do think, you know, while money is a is an issue, it's still uh, teaching profession still attracts people despite the way that it's, um, you know, not necessarily uh, compensated at the level that it should be.
0: So is your plan in this new role to think strategically about how do we create not only these pipelines, but these networks to elevate this conversation um, and dialogue and certainly for people who may be listening um who are interested in pursuing careers in education, what would you say to them?
1: Oh yeah, first of all, I would say, you know what? We need vanguards in the classroom. We need um, people protecting our, our children. We need people supporting our children. And one of the things we even, uh, we had this why I teach tour, we would visit high schools and colleges, and, and you know, that's where some of the students say, well, why would I return? And say, you know, become the teacher you wish you had and knew you needed. Become the teacher you wish you had and knew you needed. That seems to resonate with uh, a lot of the high school and college students that we, we've spoken to where they say, you know what, I can see that. We say, you know what, you may have had a bad experience, but, you know, you can be part of a coalition, part of a, a group to change that. Because at the end of the day, even if you had a, a miserable experience and you're never going back, your little brother and your little sister still attend that school. Who's going to be the vanguard to make sure that you're advocating and pushing and challenging and um, helping the students to resist. Teaching is revolutionary work, and we, until we build our own systems, we need to flood the system where our kids are.
0: I love that. I I think back to my own experiences and, and the impact for even young girls in the fourth grade and how that can impact your esteem. And I remember I had a teacher in the fourth grade that said to me that I was terrible at math and from that moment it 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 was something that probably I've carried um yeah, my like entire anything. life and um you know it took time to overcome that but um i think you're absolutely right to think about um teaching as you know to attract vanguards and to think about our own experiences that may have been challenging, and how we can turn that into something powerful, yeah. and to uplift our, our our brothers and sisters. So I certainly, I can certainly appreciate that, and I'm so excited to see um, what you're going to be doing in this new role. Did yeah. you want to say something? Yeah, else? I
1: just want to say, and, and if that doesn't, if all of that doesn't sell somebody, um, John Hopkins University uh, did a study, and the results of the study was something that you know. Um, Communities of color knew all along, but John Hopkins kind of did this, you know, a deeper dive as to the numbers and the impact. If a black person, a black child has just one, one black teacher, they are 39% less likely to drop out of high school.
0: To say that again.
1: If a black student has one, just one black teacher, they are 39% less likely to drop out of high school that is tremendous and 29% more likely to go to college attend college so with those two data points and we talk about like all the interventions people are trying like hundreds of different interventions some of them are crap some of them are mediocre some are are good nothing touches that so and this is just a black teacher now we add on effectiveness and the professional development and their you know the consistency where you have Three, you know, black teach effective black teachers, you know, in back to back years, or at least in elementary, middle, or high school, the impact that that can have on 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 students' success is is just outstanding. And we need to pay far more attention. So we need policymakers to understand. And this is what communities of color have always said, hey, well, I want that teacher. Oh, you know what? There's not enough, you know, you know, we talk about this windows and mirrors and just how traumatic it is for a black child to always have windows in their classroom and in their school experience, never seeing a reflection of themselves, not only the person who's leading the classroom, the person who's leading the school, the school board, like everyone who impacts the school in leadership roles tend to be white. Right. And then the literature that's placed in front of them, the pictures and the quotes that are on the walls is all shares a white experience. So they get this constant window, not only outside in the media and everywhere else in positions of power, but also within the school. Conversely, the white child always gets the mirror. They are always, you know, looking at a reflection of themselves in the power positions within the school adjacent to school. And so what does that do to them? How does that, you know, support their identity? And one of the key ways that's for black children, any child, for uh, but particularly black children because their humanity is constantly under attack and uh, in peril, that they view themselves and have a positive racial identity helps them navigate the system, helps them push back and resist, helps them. Uh, have the shield and armor to uh, basically grow up and 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 try to thrive in a, in a what's essentially a racist society, and so this windows and mirrors uh, theory is 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 really important in the context of schools, who's leading the classroom and the mindset, and we know the numbers aren't going to change overnight, so that means we also need uh, white teachers to be anti-racist. We need white teachers to have a deeper understanding of cultural responsive pedagogy. We need white teachers to have a a a, a high high level of humility so that where they are addressing their internal uh, experiences of race, class, and privilege and how that permeates classrooms and schools.
0: So this is a perfect uh, transition um, to delving into um, in more depth about your experiences as an educator and certainly as a principal of uh, a, a network of schools is tell us what's happening with our children. When I mean our children, particularly with ba- black boys, what did you see and experience on a daily basis?
1: Yeah. So what I what I saw, um, and just for a little bit of context, I did not go to a traditional um, public school till tenth grade, and so my experience was, you know, one I went to a a freedom school in Thalmasasa, which is a Pan African freedom school created by activists, started in someone's basement, um, eventually, you know, rented a space from a Catholic church in Germantown section of Philadelphia, and so I, you know, grew up in this kind of cocoon of, you know, just positive racial identity and this self-pride and this self-determination and all of these um, factors, as well as highly literate, you know, going to the traditional system, I could have skipped two grades. My mom only let me skip one. Um, But I say all that to say is that, you know, even though I had this unique experience, what I found and what I experienced over my 26 years with our black boys is this level of brilliance this level of joy this level of persistence you know when i when i hear people you know kind of uh change angela duckworth's uh work around grit you know that make it seem like oh that has to be taught um like every child i experienced i interacted with i taught i led i supported i learned from had more grit in their, you know, fingernail <laughs> than most of the people uh, who are there trying to profess that they're teaching kids grit. Uh, what I found is that sometimes, sometimes uh, students may need uh, support in connecting the dots between the grit that they have and academic um, grit academic persistence. That may be an issue. But a lot of times it's not necessarily that they need support with academic persistence. The teacher needs support in how to be more engaging, how to be more effective educator. That makes so, perfect sense. You know, but it's all, the ta- you know, often it's looked at, oh, that child needs to be, you know, more engaged and needs to show grit and push through. No, nah, your lesson is trash. It is boring. Like, I wouldn't want to sit through that, even with the, all the self-discipline that I have. No, nah, do better. Right? And so, but a lot of times it's much easier to point to that 13 year old and say, ah, they don't have grit. They, you know, they give up too easily. They're, you know, this deficit mindset. When actually, your lesson plan was trash.
0: Or they have a lack of interest, or they're not engaged. Or it's, it's not, or not, not relevant. Or not paying attention. It's not relevant. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm being asked to
1: sit through day after 180 something days times 12 years. Of, you know, things that don't connect to my community, don't connect to my experience, doesn't connect to my culture. But I'm, I'm being told, like, in any way, if I engage this too much, like, I'm it's almost like a form of, you know, protection, you know, uh, for this child to say, like, you know what, I'm not engaged. This is madness. This is a, a constant attack on my psyche, on my well-being, on my identity of myself. I'm, I'm checking out. Right. That's actually self-preservation in, in some ways. Right. And so we have to be really careful about how we're, you know, um, approaching children, how we're approaching the work, how we're um, if we're using a deficit, um, you know, mindset and thinking. And so that's why this professional development is so key, is so important. The reflective practices of a an effective uh, educator, it is so important. How does race, class and privilege play out? In my lesson, every lesson plan, when you're particularly when you're working with any child, but particularly children of color, every lesson plan is a political document. Every time you deliver a lesson, it's a political act. How you think about the children, what you believe about them, what do you believe they can do. If you believe that your destinies are intertwined with theirs, all of that goes into how you teach and how you lead a classroom. And, and students will be able to to, um, to identify whether you're for them or against them, regardless of what your mouth says, you know.
0: So uh, this term is talked about all the time, cultural relevancy. Right. So in the context and what you've just described, which is really fantastic, and, and I hope for those who are educators that are listening, that they will take in everything that you've just said and and kudos to those that are already doing that right, right. but what does that mean you know I've heard this as an attorney I've heard this a lot as someone who has taught as well this what does that look like for our children and particularly for black boys
1: yeah so culturally responsive Teaching and pedagogy, what that what that basically means is one, you're not centering yourself in your own experience, you are centering the community that you serve, right? It is meaning that you're going deeper than what the actual, you know, one, you're doing an audit, like what am I actually teaching? What does my bookshelf look like? Does my bookshelf, you know, the, right now, I, I think you know, the average black child, average uh, brown child, Latinx child, child of color they're more likely to see a talking rabbit in the books that teachers put in front of them instead of reflections of themselves, right? So I'm reading a book, over, and it, go, it goes back to the repetition, right? The books I'm being read to, in circle time, the books that I'm reading myself, the books that i put putting in front of me, it is constantly someone else or a talking animal, right? Cult- a culturally uh, responsive teacher, an effective teacher, is going to audit their book choices and list and what students are able to choose from or what they say their mandated reading and make sure that you know what this is this is uh supports the positive Racial identity of my students. This centers their experience, you know. And it's not the oh, you know, every every school has to be about about the hood and you know the you know this black pathology because I see that happening too. Like oh, this is very this is relevant. Like no, like is that really what you the only you know. Uh, prism that you're looking at the black experience through, and so that's problematic as well. So a culturally responsive teacher understands this and says, you know what, I'm going to give a a variety of, of choices. I'm going to make sure that the protagonists are also complex and they are, you know, they mirror, you know, some experience. It doesn't mean that everything that you read has to be exactly what you saw. It can be windows and mirrors, but there's this idea that when I say classic literature, I'm not always talking about white and Eurocentric. When I think classic literature, I'm always wondering, like, what part of Africa or what part of New York or Philly are you talking about? Who are you talking about, Toni Morrison? You know, you talking about Maya. Who are you talking about when you say classic literature? For some people, it's an automatic whiteness. But for a culturally responsive teacher, they're thinking differently. The same with um, a science teacher, that they would go deeper and they would interrogate their own practice and their own understanding of what are the contributions of of black people and Latinx people to the sciences, right? And so, like, whatever content that you teach, you should be looking to see, like, how do I add the the child's experience? And if I have all white students, I'm still looking to see how do I add the contributions to other people because uh, many of my students think that because of their education, because of our schools, that the only contributions to sciences and to the mathematics and to literature are white people. That reinforces white supremacy. If I grow up being taught no one else has contributed to this society, no one else has built this society, no one else has pushed and challenged the society to become better, except Dr. Martin Luther King, then that's problematic, right? And we know that's a falsehood. And so uh, the culture responsive teacher is centering other experiences outside of the white experience, and particularly for students of color. But white children also need to be exposed to the reality.
0: We'll be right back with Sharif al mekki after this break.
1: Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of Black male humanity in America through an intimate, intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for Black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions.
0: They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need savers, they need believers. We're back with Sharif El-Mekki, founder of Black Educators for Social Justice. So, um, and I I also want to talk to you, um, um, I think for many people, this concept around asset-based approaches Mm -hmm. and understanding how that plays out within the school setting, if you can touch upon this really briefly, because I have so much more that I want to talk to you about. But many would say that, um particularly for black students and young um uh black boys that they're primarily talked about in from the lens of deficits and not um their strengths and assets so if you can talk about that
1: yeah and and i think this is again really important um concept of like how we approach our work if we if we if we view our students as the full you know with their full humanity And, you know, parents send them to us. You know, a lot of times people think like, oh, you know, children are traumatized because of their homes and communities. Nah, a lot of these children, they come, they leave home whole. They walk through their community whole. They get traumatized in school under your watch as your charge. And so we have to be humble enough to recognize that that's, you know, We can't keep looking at communities as, you know, with this idea of, like, black pathology and, you know, like, oh, everything's wrong, so I'm coming to save, you know, um, these children. Like, no, our humanities are linked, and you can't actually help me unless you think that you're helping yourself too, right? And once we view that, then classrooms and schools will look differently. These children are—they're resilient, they're brilliant, they're full of joy— You know, a lot of people talk about like, you know, I send the child I look at, this black child I look at is full of humor, engaging, got a twinkle in their eye. How come when you talk about my child, you're talking about this, you know, this very different human being? What is that? And 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 why why is that experience for this black child so so different with you? And we see it, and 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 educators, when we're honest, we see how students are in one classroom, and right next door they could be a different way. That's so that can't be the child. There's some other dynamics that's happening, and quite often, quite often, it's a lack of relevance. It's lack of looking at the full humanity of this child. It's a lack of understanding that our destinies are linked, right? And so that's when you can be, you know. People call it the dropout, but it's really the pushout rate. Why it's so high, why the traumatic experiences within our classrooms and school is, is so high and so pervasive is because people are not looking at, at that. And the things that we are uh, saying about children, we would never say that about our own children. And that's not just a white educator issue. There's a lot of classism uh, issues, or even amongst, um, you know, uh, teachers of color. And so we all have to do a much better job because teachers of color also, everyone ingests white supremacy, everyone ingests anti-blackness. And so if you're not interrogating that in your own practices on a consistent basis, you're very likely to spew the same nonsense. If not in words, then you'll deliver it in action. You'll deliver it in your lessons. You'll deliver it in how you teach and how you lead your your classroom.
0: So... I want to talk a little bit more about the trauma that you've just described and specifically for black boys, um, how what you've seen, what they may have shared with you. Um, One of the things that we do talk about at McSilver is really the trauma of poverty because um, certainly um, for many of our young people. Uh, especially those that are living in under-resourced communities, um, there are some challenges that they are facing that are further compounded, and and the, the the trauma is extended through their experiences in school. And certainly, we know this to be true in in places like New York City and other urban communities in Philadelphia. So if you could you can talk about that because the one thing that I have found is that we talk about black men and boys in so many different contexts, many of them being deficit oriented. We are not talking about black boys in particular, about the trauma that they are experiencing and how that is impacting them Emotionally and certainly um, in terms of uh, performance in school and, and other challenges that they may be experiencing, that are not about pathologizing them. That would only be natural for any human being to yeah. be feeling that yeah. way.
1: I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. People talk about this idea of you know post traumatic stress syndrome, and what I what I um, would contend is that that P isn't for post, it's for persistent in a lot of our students' experience. So it's this persistent, you know, um, stress. It's this persistent trauma. And, you know, and, and the trauma, a lot of times people are, is, is the poverty, but it's also linked to the racial stress that, you know, combines with the experience of children. And, you know, there's research around, like, how that can even rewire your brain and, like, how you think and how you act and how you internalize and your worldview. And how you
0: perceive yourself. Exactly,
1: exactly, which is one of the most important things, right? You know, Malcolm used to say, who taught you to hate yourself? Well, you know what? The the oppression that people, that our children face— can have that kind of impact. And that, that's why it's so important that educators and social workers and any other public sectors, as well as policymakers, politicians, understand this deeply, how their actions, how their neglect impacts you know, um, whole communities, um, particularly their children. But I, I think you know, one, of the, uh, one of the key things that I've, I've found over the years is the, the stress and trauma around violence and how that you know um, even 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 seeing the monuments that are placed in communities you know for children to say like you know what and we we, we see sometimes after after a traumatic event after a, a murder you know there will be you know a kind of makeshift monument and children sometimes that I've spoken to have talked about like how many monuments they've seen over their lives Right. And now with the advent of technology and the and the videos of, you know, modern day lynchings of 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 black men and women you know, state-sanctioned, right, which is another level it's of, uh, right, right. And so these are all of the things that, that, that a child is continuing to, you know, their neurons are snapping, right, and it is like absorbing all of this. And so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, we've experienced that students have expressed is this, I, I think two things. One, um, this idea of safety is so important to them. Um, and when you look at it just developmentally, you know, from a child, from a baby, like, you know, feeling safe and secure is, you know, one of the basic needs. And unfortunately, so many of our our students and our children, uh, no fault of their own, often from public policy, are their safety and security is constantly under threat. And so that's one of the th- ways that as a school leader that we were, um, and my team that we were constantly thinking about, like, how do we help students feel safe and secure? You know, sometimes I, I go around the country and sometimes prov- our, our group, we're providing professional development and people are like, oh, our students are, are fighting and, and, you know, they're doing things. And, you know, are we contend, you know, what? one of the number one reasons why students fight is because they feel like they have to take matters in their own hands. That's a trust issue. It's not that they're more violent than other children. It's that they they feel like I can't trust you to help me, right? And so if the attention is paid on how, what supports, how do we communicate the supports? How do we make sure that we're consistent with supports? Because at the end of the day, how do we help ensure that students feel safe and feel secure, that is what, you know, develops the culture that you need in, a, in this community so that children can thrive. And so this, um, you know, this this idea of safety, and, you know, when we talk about, like, it's not just the physical safety that, that's in, in peril, their intellectual safety, their emotional safety, their cultural safety, right? All of that. Now, you, you combine all of that and then you're just saying, like, hey, why aren't you sitting still? Why aren't you um, doing X, Y, Z? Like, all of that has, has, a, has an issue. Um, Hillary Beard in Philadelphia did, uh, did some work with, um, she does work with a lot of schools and districts. And one of the things that she uh, talks about is this even perception. So the safety even percep- perception. The perception of how many people in, in, in someone's community is actually carrying a gun. You go to many schools, because of how the media portrays black people, they think that the vast majority of young black men are carrying guns when that's not the case. So even that perception, and this is something that they've internalized often because of the media, right? Hines, the Heinz Foundation in Pittsburgh did a study of what the actual crime rate being done by um, uh, black Pittsburgh um, people and what, how, what the percentage was that was played out on TV, on the news. A vast difference, yes. vastly disproportionate, right? But that's what, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, maybe 17% to 87% of what's portrayed, right? And so having that impact. And so you as a child, and again, we're talking about like what you see day to day to day, what you experience day to day to day, all of that. No, a child doesn't feel safe and secure. That's one of the biggest barriers to, to learning at the, at the optimal levels,
0: So you had mentioned speaking to policymakers and elected officials, and and how do you have those conversations? How does this move from being something that's incremental, that is more systematic, where more— you know, there's so much talk. You hear elected officials always talk about it as part of their platform around education. We're well, coming. Really,
1: really, yeah. Most of the time, they can get elected without saying a word about education.
0: <laughs> well, I think in certain communities, certainly in New York City, where we have one of, the, if not the largest, um, public education system. Mm-hmm. Certainly in other areas like Philadelphia, but certainly in our communities, mm-hmm. our our parents, our our neighbors are talking about community uh, about education and certainly whether their elected official is doing something, Mm -hmm. whether they care about uh, the lack of resources that are particularly coming into um, certain neighborhoods. So what will your organization be doing in order to expand this conversation to policymakers to help them understand what are best practices that are tried and true, what the... um, uh, research and studies are showing, I'm hoping as part of this interview that we'll be able to include some of the studies um, that you referenced so that those that are interested in um, taking this information and bringing to their own jurisdictions will have the access to do so but talk about how do we begin to really have um, more impactful conversations with policymakers, elected officials, school districts, superintendents yeah. um to improve the situation for our black boys in yeah.
1: schools. Yeah. I I think one as you said, you know, gathering the data and making sure that they they see it, that they read it. Um, I've I've been blown away of how many politicians that I've met over the years, and they don't have a clue about like what's actually happening. They have no clue about the studies. Like I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they. I would imagine po- politicians are you know some of the most my naive self you know think like oh you got to got to be one of the most well read people, and I uh, find out that's not the case. <laughs> you know there a lot of them are not well read. A lot of them are, are not um, keeping up with research or even you know curious enough to um, dive into that. Um, So I, I would say, like, one of the things that is important is, one, building coalitions and making sure that people are aware of the data, and then, two, having proof points. So, you know, a small example of what we're engaging, policymakers and funders and things, was the success of freedom schools. So as I said, we launched two sites this, um, this past summer. We're looking to do it year-round. We're that same model. College students, high school students come into an elementary school student. But it's not just that they're just coming to hang out or do homework help. They're helping with reading. And we know that if you, have, if you leave third grade on grade level, your graduation rate is going to skyrocket. The chance, odds of you graduating high school if you're reading on third grade level by third grade is phenomenal. Right. And so we also know that if you are have a, a black teacher, that's also going to increase your college persistence and your high school graduation rates. Right. And so, like, these are these are factors. Eighty five percent of the college and high school students that we worked with this summer said that because of their freedom school experience, they are more interested in becoming teachers. Right. And so th- that's, again, another data point that we're putting going to put in front of policymakers like, hey, Let's help these. They're interested in it. Dr. Ivory Tolson said that's one of the number one professions. Let's put some money behind it and make this an interim. Let's make sure that they have scholarships to attend. Um, and if they commit to five years in in um, teaching in public schools, that, you know, their loans are forgiven at a faster rate than, than what occurs through the, uh, you know, the federal programming now, right? But they're also, like, what they're learning. They're learning research-based methods to be reading, reading coaches, reading teachers, right? And so even not just in the classroom, but this is something that they can help their younger sibling, a neighborhood, in the barbershop, at the rec center, because they're learning the basics of phonics and it's research-based, right? So all of these things, and you couple that with the positive racial identity work, the cultural responsiveness work, that can be tremendous impact on communities. And so what, what we want to do is not only show the data, but also tell the stories about what's happening. And then and and show proof points, and I believe that the Center for Black Educated Development we're well positioned to um, continue to do this work um, on the national level.
0: I think being able to to present this information to policymakers, um, some elected officials are working you know part time, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They may not have the staffing in place in order to deal with the myriad of policy issues that they have to. To deal with, which may sound surprising to most people, Um, I've worked in government, so I know firsthand. Depending upon the size of your municipality, the size of your uh, your city and your city government, but I do think this idea of engaging elected officials around some real. Um, not only the data and the research, but how do you do it? Because that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Are these demonstration projects? How do I fund that? Because it also becomes a conversation around budget. How do I, everyone wants to understand better how to create these, uh, the pipeline, because these are at times intractable problems that are being handled in schools. And, and that's why your organization um is a tremendous resource and and certainly I hope that these continued conversations will help to raise more awareness about the need for these kinds of approaches. Um, I know over the past couple of months, uh, I know you're involved with the Black Boys film, Mm -hmm. which Never Whisper Justice is producing and um, which is being directed by Sonia Lohman. Uh, We've talked a lot about uh, the increasing rates of suicidality among black boys and girls, and how they are exceeding that of of white kids. tell me uh, you know your reaction to that. Tell me what you've seen in your experience as as an educator in schools
1: yeah i I think it's one of the things that you know um, as an educator, I've had to learn more about. Um, There was, you know, I know I had an earlier in my career, I had a misconception that one black children just didn't commit suicide. Um, And I think, you know, that was, you know, that was a miss on my part. Uh, And I think about like, you know, as I was learning more, you know, fortunately, we maintained our social work. A social worker and the development that she did for us, and I'm really grateful that we had, um, you know, her in our building and our community. Because I knew a lot of schools, um, peer schools, sister schools who cut their social workers and counselors, and so a lot of uh, educators who were just as ill-informed as myself, you know, were probably making a ton of mistakes to um, and undermining you know, uh, the mental health of, of, of children. And, you know, I, I think about like, how did that, you know, I, I knew one child when I was a, a, in high school who committed suicide. And I remember how that was talked about in the community. It was, based, it was said on the loudspeaker while everybody was in advisory. And I still think about that, like, you know, and of course that was like, you know, just way out of line. Um, and triggering and traumatic for people to just hear that and then just like it was an announcement about a baseball game or something that one of our classmates had um, committed suicide but then uh, it also just made me think and wonder like how many just really bad practices occur Um, how many um, calls for help are ignored I think about the black youth who you know they're already you know thought to be older tougher stronger you know um, that they don't have that again that full humanity of like their pain isn't is dull. But why? Because they're black, you know. Um,
0: and that could be reinforced by our own families, right? It's like oh what do? stop it about? up. <laughs> what do you stop crying or or, do you, or you know? Yeah. I've
1: I, I mean I've had children. Uh, I mean, and more than once in my career, I've had at, at different schools, I had children come to school that morning and say, you know, um, my caregiver is dead. Um one um three children actually saw a man chasing their mother down the street with a shotgun. Um and they came to school. Um, you know, unfortunately they shared that. And I also wonder how many children come to school, you know, and maybe it, it manifests itself in a in a way that, you know, adults don't know how to deal with or, you know, don't have the trust and and things like that, and so, you know, it's it, it like just really you know just impacts me to the core. Thinking about like a lot of what our youth have gone through, a lot of what they have to go through silently, and you know what that means. And so, you know, this idea of suicide. When I saw the data, when I was, you know when we went through a professional development, just to see the numbers of of, of children, and how that's um you know, increased over the years um, and what we needed to do um, on the, not just responding to crises, but what do you do as a school community to build the trust and support? Um, as I said, you know, so many schools cut the, um, support staff. And our the previous administration, the governor, um, cut $1 billion out of the state budget. So for my school itself, that meant $1 million. Um, and so we had a lot of tough, impossible choices to make but ultimately we you know we said we were keeping our our so- social worker and our support staff because we thought it was that important so we had to increase class sizes which we did not want to do we thought that was undermine the uh you know the the rate that students could learn um because of you know less individualized attention and differentiation but we also felt like you know what, we can't cut our our support staff and so it's um it's extremely challenging um, um, things that that our children face, as well as, you know, we talk about the vicarious trauma of of people who the caretakers and the support, not just teachers, but families as well. You know, knowing your child has gone through something or witnessed something or experienced something, um, and then we the one of the other things that we talk about is just the mental health of of those who serve um, children who've gone through trauma, and or compounded by not, or compounded by the trauma that they experienced as children that was undealt with. And so you have a, sometimes these scenarios, you're in schools and you have, you know, children who are going through trauma with other children who are going through trauma being taught by a teacher who was traumatized as a child and never dealt with it, right? They were told, like, suck it up, man up, whatever it is, right? And we sometimes see two, three-year-olds being told not to cry, not to hurt, you know, man up, you know. Um, and so then they're leading a classroom. And what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that do to learning? What does that do to building a, a positive culture? And so there's a ton of work to do, you know, first of understanding. Um, and then this idea of, of, you know, just mental health for communities, right? Not just individual, but you know the stress, the racial stress, the oppression that entire communities have been forced to, um, you know, persist through, uh, demonstrate resilience and grit through, but it still needs to be dealt with. And I think about even my own experience of being a, I mean, a twenty twenty one year old being shot and left left to die. Like I never went to counseling for that. And when I think, you know, and of even when people would have asked, I would have been looked at. I'm like, are you crazy? I'm fine. Like, I'm, you know, like, it's nothing. Um, but that's not nothing, right? Like It's a near-death experience. It's a near-death experience. And I just, like, like kept it moving because I knew a bunch of people who did not survive that. So I'm like, oh, well, I survived it. So, like, all right, it wasn't my day. Like, that that in itself, when I think about it now, you know, 26 years later, I'm just like, yo, that was a big miss, <laughs> you know? And, um... And I don't know if anybody could have forced me at that time in my life to go to counseling, but... um,
0: I think we're similar in age. At that point, I don't even know if the kinds of conversations we're having around mental health and, and suicide and it's... It's my hope that as we continue to raise awareness about this yeah, issue, that yeah. it's a ring the alarm moment. I do think we, um, for a variety of reasons, um, there are these perceptions that persist not only outside of the Black community but within the Black community mm-hmm. that we don't commit suicide, um, and we do. And particularly when you're talking about and children and younger children, and younger, between like between the ages of five and eleven, yeah, which that's... I hear all the time. Well, why? Why would a five-year-old want to commit suicide? Could be a number of reasons yeah. um, why, and certainly we've seen cases in the last year around racialized bullying, where young people, young boys, have taken their lives, and young black girls have uh, done so as well. And particularly around gender identity, we've seen that happen as well. The
1: highest number, I believe, of you know, yes. um so.
0: So. Um, Talk about a little bit. Um, there's a lot of discussion that is happening nationally around the importance of social workers in school. This is happening in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the approach that at, when you were the principal at the Shoemaker Campus, uh, how did you approach that? Um, what kind of training did your social workers have? And then um, I want to close out to make sure that people know how to get in touch um, with your organization sure, if you sure, can provide sure. that information.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, we're, you know, really grateful, um, you know, to have our social worker as part of the team and not just like a, a you know, kind of siloed or one-off, you know, um, she not only, her name is Sarah Gentry, not only, and we have two this year going into this the school year, um, but what we what we had was, uh, in addition to that, we provided, count, we wrote a grant initially, how it launched was, well, really we wrote a grant to be able to provide mental and behavioral health support um, for our community, and this included family therapy for families who, um, who desired it. Um, it was the idea that, you know, most teacher colleges aren't going in-depth if they address it at all, and so we believe this is one of the skill sets. And not that, you know, a teacher has to be the, you know, most skilled uh, you know therapists but they have to be able to recognize signs they have to have the humility and trauma-informed practice where they understand um you know what may be going through whether it's you know um, some of the books that children may read may be triggering and how to identify that how to support and number one thing is who do you go to what do you do immediately when you see that and so having a a trained professional um in the building um was just amazing and she would have uh, not only coordinate a lot of the outside supports that our our students needed um, you know whether it was crisis or whether families just needed additional resources providing therapy and counseling um, to our children uh, providing, you know, safe space, even after school programming um, for, you know, for students was was key. But I, I think one of the most important things that she did was lead professional development for our staff, including myself. And so we had um, these PLCs, professional learning communities, that Dove in a cultural context professional development and trauma-informed approaches and we do we tried to do it in a way where people didn't just assume oh You're black you need, you know, you're going through trauma um Or you know, like those kind of things are you know, we have to be really careful about not just saying like oh, you know um Because you're black you had this kind of experience right and making those, you know, big assumptions, but um also acknowledging that the the oppression that, that communities face, people are, are, and children have to deal with it. And what does it look like? How do we create it? How do we make sure that we, we build trust? Because that's one of the first things that erodes when someone goes through traumatic experiences, particularly from other adults, is, you know, trust is eroded. So how do we maintain a, a, a culture in a community that does that? But, but also just diving in, having practical, you know, um, first and next steps for um, students being able to say like, hey, do you need to talk to somebody, you know, understanding that and students, you know, um, being able to just to, to share having, you know, um, everyone always talking about like the safe spaces adults need. Well, you know, like kids need safe spaces, you know, adults need brave spaces, <laughs> the children need safe spaces and making sure that that was the kind of environment that we were, um, we were creating. So I, I think our team was, um, was, their north star was children, and the health and well-being and safety of our children, and so that made it um, they made it an easy team to lead um, in this work. And I'm I'm grateful that I had a you know partners in it and leaders within the building as well as outside of the building that, that got kids, understood kids, understood the context of uh, society that they live in, understood the context and the history of of racism in the country. That that makes it, um, you know, makes it an environment and a community that's, uh, you know, trying to be anti-racist, learning to be anti-racist, learning to be um, student-centered and teacher and staff supportive. I
0: love it. So if there's someone listening um, to today's episode and they are thinking about becoming an educator... Um, but they're not entirely sure, what would you say to them?
1: I would say, um, you know, one, we need you. Our children need you. We need vanguards. And so if you are, um, if you dig kids, if you uh, believe in children and humanity, um, that they are our equals, if you believe in this concept that um, kids don't inherit the earth from us, we borrow it from them and you love some kind of content you can build relationships and you love a content um you know we need you to lead a classroom and lead lead uh lead children in and, and and schools and so um would encourage you uh to to reach out you know um every state has a has a different um methodology to become a teacher but we will provide what support we can and at the least be able to uh connect you to um you know your local uh districts we are um you know, looking to expand in different cities. You know, we're in Philadelphia now, but we will be um growing and, and building um our model and in, in other at other sites. Uh I can be found on Twitter um at Selmecki, first initial last name, S-E-L-M-E-K-K-I. Um I blog about a lot of this uh this work and this this uh these efforts on Philly's seventh ward that's P H I L L Y S the number 7 T H W A R D Philly's 7th Ward and we also can be found on Facebook and um and looking forward to engaging with your audience
0: I Actually, I refer people uh, to you on social media all the time. I ran into uh, a young black woman who was working at Sephora, uh, but her real passion, we talked for a long time about becoming a teacher and her fears about doing that Mm -hmm. and going back to school and pursuing that. I said, follow Sharif (laughs) Almecki on social media, and uh, he's someone that you should connect to. So I can't thank you enough for what you've shared um, with us today. I continue to be inspired by your work and um, looking forward to the great things that come out of this new role and our continued partnership here at McSilver. Yeah, thank you so no, much. No,
1: thank you so much. Appreciate for you having me on.
0: You've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men, changing the narrative which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at NYU Silver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.